Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 15 to 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning, Exilic Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. And later this afternoon, I hope to see many of you, as many of us from the Exilic Church family, will be gathering at 4 p.m. in the North Plaza of Union Square in Manhattan to stand for Asian American and Pacific Islander lives and dignity. And I have to say, as a pastor at Exilic Church, it's an honor to be present with you all in this particular season, in this moment. And my heart has been grieving uh, as folks from our congregation and also pastors and leaders from around the city have been opening up and sharing their stories as Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders about experiences of racism, about how they haven't felt uh, welcomed, uh, they haven't felt fully American at times. And um, it's reminded me that my story is different than so many of those who I count as dear brothers and sisters. And it reminds me to be mindful. And it reminds me that we're not where we need to be as the people of God and certainly as our country. So it's just a joy to be present with you. I'm honored to be a pastor at Exilic, and I love you all as a church. So I hope that you'll join me and many others from our church family at 4 p.m. in Union Square this afternoon. God is doing something right now in His church, in His sovereignty. Conversations are happening that have not happened before. They're often hard conversations, but I believe they can result ultimately in a greater unity among God's people. But that will take a relentless kind of perseverance. It will take a greater faith. It will take a leaning in to Scripture more, not less. Uh, it will take the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring about greater unity. So when I say that we can have greater unity on the other side of the conversations that are happening now, it's not a call to passivity on my part. It's a call to leaning into the situation more and more. White, black, 
Asian, Latino, in the body of Christ, talking with one another from Scripture, opening our hearts, and uh, growing together through these difficult conversations. Now, we're not yet the church God wants us to be. We're not locally the church God wants us to be at Exilic. We're not the church that God wants us to be around the world for sure. And we won't be the church God wants us to be completely until Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean we rest content with who we are. We press on in hope. We speak the truth in love. We believe that he who began a good work in us will carry it forward to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, which in Scripture is the day in which he returns. That's a quotation from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, chapter 6. Excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Well, this morning we've come to a place in the life of our congregation where we're hearing the last sermon on a series taken from the book of Nehemiah. Now, this sermon series was planned well before the murders in Atlanta happened. But this particular chapter of Nehemiah seems especially appropriate for us right now. It's appropriate because it reminds us that the struggle is relentless, that we need to be relentless in the struggle to love God on the one hand with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This chapter reminds us that we're not going to reach a place where there's ever going to be a utopia. There's not going to be any triumphalistic moment for the people of God until Jesus returns. There's always going to be a struggle. It doesn't mean that there can't be progress, and it's important to say that because sometimes realism has been taken as an excuse to allow injustice to persist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if we're looking for utopia, we're looking for that triumphal moment, sometimes that can have a disheartening effect, can't it? It can make us weary. Um, it can actually rob us of hope, ironically. Now, we press on knowing that God does bring about progress in His church, and we don't rest content with the sin and justice around us. And Nehemiah warns us against this kind of passive triumphalism or utopianism. But this book also calls us to hope. It calls us to confidence. Confidence in God, confidence in His promise, confidence in what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross and what He's accomplished on the cross, to have confidence in what He has guaranteed through His resurrection for our future. So we're not triumphalistic. We're not looking for utopia. But we are hopeful. We are confident. And from this place of confidence in God Himself and in His promise, we can lean into any situation before us knowing that Jesus will begin what He is, will, will uh, complete what He has already begun in us and what He's begun in His church, not only locally, but His church around the world. Now, God called Nehemiah because God was ready at this point in the history of His people to restore them back to Jerusalem, which meant restoring two things, their worship and their rest their worship in the temple, and their rest in the city of Jerusalem, which included the rebuilding of walls to protect them, and also the honoring of the Sabbath, where there, where there was to be a break in the activity of the marketplace to set all their attention on God. 
So rest, in, in a sense, includes safety, something which we're longing for today in our church and in our city for Asian Americans in particular, and particularly Asian American women in New York City and around the country more broadly. Worship and rest, these are abiding values for God's people. Our situation is very different than Nehemiah's. We're at a different place in the history of what God's doing with his people than Nehemiah was at that time, and they were then. But these two values of worship and rest, they remain for us. They look different in some ways, but they do remain abiding values. And that's one reason we as the people of God need to guard them so closely. We're called on the one hand to be nurtured in our worship and to receive rest ourselves. On the other hand, we're called to be a light to the world, the city set on a hill, a beacon of life-giving worship of the one true God and a signpost and and a colony of heaven for rest for the future. So we guard worship and rest as abiding values as exilic church here witnessing to the broader city of Manhattan and to the world from the place where we find ourselves. Well, Nehemiah's day, they needed a temple and they needed walls. And they needed leadership to rebuild and maintain both of these, the temple and the walls. And the people of God likewise need leadership today. We need leadership in the church and we need leadership from God's people outside of the church. Now, Nehemiah is called to be a governor. He's a civil servant. He's not a priest. Um, he is more like a, like a politician or a political leader. He's called to join forces with Ezra, who is a priest. And so you have this uh, dual spheres, if you will, of the civil government of Israel and the religious worship of Israel working together to secure worship and rest. By the time we reach chapter 12, the work that Nehemiah was called to do is completed. The walls have been rebuilt. And in chapter 12, which is the chapter just preceding the one we're considering today, they come to the place where Nehemiah is dedicating these newly built walls in Jerusalem. And what he does to dedicate them is he appoints two large choirs to celebrate the occasion. Ezra, his partner in this effort of rebuilding and restoring worship and rest in Jerusalem, leads one of these choirs to the south end of the wall. Nehemiah leads another choir to the north end of the wall. You have the two great leaders, you have the two great choirs. And verse 43 of chapter 12 says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This would have been a good place to end the book, wouldn't it? And they lived happily ever after in Jerusalem with no more struggle, no more tears, no more anguish, just joy being heard far and wide forever. Except it didn't end that way. It would have been a good place to end, but it's not how the book ends. The book actually ends in a very anticlimactic way. We move quickly from joy being heard far away to a situation where we're reminded that sin among God's people is relentless. 
Sin is relentless. Therefore, Nehemiah had to be relentless. As we unpack the, the, the text for today and, and look at chapter 13, we're reminded that there is going to be this relentless struggle against sin in our own day. But because the struggle is relentless, doesn't mean it's without hope. It doesn't mean it's without joy. It doesn't mean it's without confidence. It just means that it's present, sometimes in greater elevation than in other times. But it is relentless. However, like Nehemiah, we take hope in God. And we know even more than he knew. We don't just take hope in God. We take hope in Jesus Christ. We trust him because he came to defeat sin and death. He was crucified and he has been risen. He is ascended. He reigns over all things. And trusting in him, we can be relentless from a place of joy and hope, even though the struggle is real. It may at times be a joy mixed with tears, but it is a joy nonetheless because Jesus, who delivered us, reigns. And one day we know we will reign with him because he's conquered death. And the whole world and all of human history is moving to this place of worship forever with Jesus. And on the day he returns and brings this full worship to consummation, there'll be no more turning back. Then there will only be joy heard far and away forever and ever. And that's where you and I are headed in Jesus Christ. So as we look at this chapter, we do so from this vantage point. Realism with confidence. A relentless struggle with joy. Real pain, real tears, but mixed with hope. So let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 13. What is actually happening here? Where is sin seem to be relentless in this particular book? We see the relentless aspect of sin in the struggle to maintain worship and rest. Um, Nehemiah, in verse 13, returns after the dedication. We don't know exactly uh, when he's returned, but it's sometime after the dedication of the walls. And what he finds is that, as he says in verse 11 of chapter 13, the house of God has been forsaken. What happened? He mentions a couple of things. One, there's this priest named Eliashib. And Eliashib took a room in the temple that was intended to house grain for the offering. And instead, he made it kind of a lounge for this guy named Tobiah. Tobiah was one of the people that actually vigorously opposed the rebuilding of the wall to start with. So you have space made in what's supposed to be a holy place to facilitate the worship of God's people for an enemy of God's people. And the door is opened by a spiritual leader himself, supposedly Eliashib. This is corruption right at the heart of the life-giving worship of Israel. Well, Nehemiah sees this. What does he do? In keeping with his character, he is relentless. So he becomes angry and he throws Tobias' furniture out of this room. He restores the temple to its proper use. So that's the first thing that we see in chapter 13, that sin keeps pressing against worship. And the reason that's so important for us to take note of is there's a great quotation by a scholar named Greg Beale. He says, what we worship, we are for ruin or restoration. If our worship is corrupted, if our vision of God is corrupted, we ourselves will be famished. And more than that, we'll have no hope 
to give anyone else in the world. So Nehemiah labors to restore worship. And we continue with this abiding value of worship. Always labor uh, to protect and focus and invest in the worship of God for His glory and for our own good. Well, the second thing that Nehemiah notices about worship is that the Levites, now these are the people who in that day were supported financially in order to run the temple, they were not being supplied the means of support that they needed. Uh, They weren't being given uh, the grain and, and the food to do their work. So Nehemiah confronts the leaders. Um, He restores their financial support, and he sets up a whole system to make sure that worship will be invested in properly in the future. Now, we also see later in the chapter, there's one final aspect of this neglect of worship, this persistent, uh, relentless aspect of, of sin pressing in against worship, that some of the people had lost sight of the fact that the Word of God was essential to life-giving relationship with Him, to the point where they had married foreign people who didn't speak God's Word and therefore couldn't worship Him. And that was the problem with them being non-Israelites. It wasn't that they were just non-Israelites. It's that they hadn't converted to worship the one true God. And this led to a situation where you had children who didn't even speak the language of God's people. So therefore, they couldn't hear the Word of God, which would be life to them. So the temple goes into disrepair. There's no longer financial support, which indicates a lack of priority to support the work of the temple, which was done by the Levites. And lastly, it's gotten so bad that there's even a portion of people who don't seem to care anymore about the Word of God itself. Again, there's so much for us here. We need to continue to invest and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ personally, and week by week as a corporate people of God. Make worship the center of our experience. Make worship the center of our priorities. And never lose sight of this reality, that if we're not worshiping Jesus and becoming more like Him, we're worshiping something else and becoming more like whatever that is. The only way we can be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus is to keep our eyes fixed on Him. He's the source of our life. He's the source of our healing. He's the source uh, where He's the one who will wipe every tear away from our eyes, both now and in the future. We bring Him our lament, and we do so with open heart. But we do so with confidence that in the end, He will carry us through. So we need to stay focused on Jesus Christ corporately and personally, because What we worship, we resemble for our ruin or our restoration. We spoke about worship, and now we're going to speak about rest. So what happened with rest? What does Nehemiah discover with rest? Well, this relates to the passage that was read to you. We're looking at all of chapter 13 broadly, but the passage that was read to you focused especially on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one day in seven in which all the activity of the marketplace was to cease. The people of God would invest in the worship of God. Uh, The walls were rebuilt, in a sense, uh, to protect the people, absolutely. And they also had a function on the Sabbath, because you would close the gates on the Sabbath, and that would uh, be the end of commerce on the Sabbath. 
But we find when Nehemiah returns in chapter 13, having dedicated these walls, that the walls were built, but they actually never closed the gates, not even on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest, and yet it had become a day of the marketplace. There was diversion of attention away from God and on to buying and selling. Now this need for rest is connected to as deep a reality. That's that God has made His people in His image. Every human being, in fact, around the world is made in the image of God. And without communion and rest and worship with Him, we'll not find true life, we'll not find true flourishing or satisfaction. So along with the worship being corrupted, the rest of the people of God is corrupted. The walls were rebuilt, but then one vital aspect of their employ was never put to use. The gates were not shut to focus on what was right. But what we see here is that though sin is relentless, Nehemiah himself is even more relentless. He continues to be relentless. He knows that God is faithful to keep His promise, so he keeps laboring on. And something about his perspective emerges that's really important for us to see in this chapter. Three times in this final chapter, Nehemiah prays for God to remember the good that he has done as a governor over God's people. Now, if you're just reading this chapter, this is all that you're reading about Nehemiah. It's, it's, uh, it stands out, one, that he's asking for God to bless him in particular. So you wonder, huh, what kind of person this is? Not that that's wrong, but he asks three times in one chapter. It seems like he's really focused on himself in this chapter. But when we take it in the context of the whole book, what we find is very interesting. Um, what we see is that in the fifth chapter of Nehemiah, he's right in the thick of leading the people in Jerusalem. He's in the thick of facing the opposition to rebuilding the walls. And while he's doing that, he realizes <clears throat> that while he's dealing with oppression from the outside of people opposing rebuilding the wall and having to lead a force to protect God's people against that opposition, he learns that the nobles and leaders of, uh, of Israel have themselves been oppressing their own people. They've oppressed them financially to the point of pushing them into poverty. And so what Nehemiah does is he boldly challenges the nobles in Jerusalem. He takes on the wealthy and he says, you're reducing your own brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, to slavery through your financial oppression. They turn from this. They repent. And on top of that, Nehemiah decides he's going to lead by example. He's a governor. And so he deserves, or he has a legal right, to a salary that came through taxation from the people. But for 12 years, he forewent all of this salary, which was for his food allowance. He was supplied through other means, so as not to burden the people. He made great sacrifice himself to pursue justice for his people. And this is the first place we see this very direct prayer of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 5.16, where he says, Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I think what we see here in context, and it fits in again with what we'll see, that prayer basically repeated in 
one fashion or another three times in chapter 13, is Nehemiah is a place of leadership in serving the Lord where he's made great sacrifice for a long time. Um, not only is he struggling uh, to push forward with this effort and to deal with injustice by confronting it outside of God's people and from within God's people, but personally, he's made a sacrifice. We don't know how he was sustained. It doesn't speak of that, but he gave up his salary. And I believe what we see here in chapter 5 is Nehemiah praying out to God very personally, in dependence upon the Lord, Remember for my good, O God, all I have done for this people because I've given up a lot in your service. He directs his hope personally in God, whom he knows to be a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Nehemiah is one who knows God to be one who rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And actually, we see that also played out in his prayers in this book. Because he will pray for God, not only to remember himself, but to remember the enemies in Jerusalem who were opposing the building of the wall and to bring justice upon them. So Nehemiah is relentless in confronting injustice. He's relentless in chapter 13 in continuing to fight against sin among God's people so they can have rich and true worship and, and the rest needed as God's people to flourish. He's relentless. But he does it from this place of confidence. Confidence that God is a God who is faithful to his covenant. He will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. Therefore, he's confident that God is going to take care of him whenever he's making sacrifices, personal sacrifices, to be faithful to God. So he prays from that place, knowing that though it's hard, God will, in the end, be just. He is relentless because he has this great confidence in God. Now, when we think about ourselves, um, this is both encouraging on the one hand, and yet convicting on the other, right? Because who of us is even like Nehemiah? Now, Nehemiah in this book acknowledges he's not perfect on more than one occasion. He groups himself, himself in with the sins of his people. But when we hear about the relentless character of Nehemiah, I don't know about you, but I'm more humbled than encouraged in the sense of, I'm not a Nehemiah, right? I'm not a Nehemiah. He reminds me as much of my faults as he does of my gifts and talents and strengths. And it may be the same for you, if you're honest this morning. But what's wonderful is that Nehemiah is pointing us to one who is even more relentless than he was, and that's Jesus Christ. Nehemiah is governor over Jerusalem to partner with Ezra to restore the worship and rest of God's people at that time. But Jesus comes as the very Son of God, King of the world, King of the universe, to reign over all things, not, over, not just over Jerusalem. And he inaugurates this reign through death and resurrection. Now, as he comes, because you and I are not Nehemiahs. You and I are not righteous. Therefore, God's covenant promise to us, if we're not trusting in Jesus, we're going to be on the wrong side of that covenant promise. 
We're going to be found with the wicked, bearing the judgment of God, not the blessing of God. But Jesus comes as the Son of God to fulfill everything that we cannot do. He's better than Nehemiah. Nehemiah himself had hope in the promise of God to save, and he too was looking for a Redeemer. He didn't know as much as we know today, but he's looking for a Redeemer. And we now know that Redeemer and that Savior to be Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who's even more relentless than Nehemiah in the struggle against sin. And that's good news for us. Because when we look to Jesus, we know two things. One, we know personally that He has made a way for us to be restored to God. He has restored our own worship to God. He has made a way for us to have rest in Him now and to be guaranteed rest forever. And Jesus has done all this to such completion that we receive it all as a gift by faith. Not so that we can just sit in it, though we do sit in it each Sunday and we bask in what Jesus has done for us, but that from this place we can now bear witness to Jesus. We can go out and bear witness to life-giving worship. We can bear witness to what it is to have rest and safety, not only in the church, but outside the church. We can be used of Him to bear witness to the glory of God. What does it look like to love God and to love neighbor? All because Jesus is not just more relentless than us, not just more relentless than Nehemiah, but Jesus is more relentless than sin itself. And He defeats sin on the cross once for all and conquers death once for all through His resurrection. And therefore, where do we stand today? We're not the same place Nehemiah was. But we join with all the Old Testament saints, Nehemiah and earlier than Nehemiah. The scripture says way back in the days of Abraham, before there even was a nation of Israel, that Abraham, it says in Hebrews 11, chapter 10, was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This isn't the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. This isn't the city of New York in our day. This is a city that has not yet been fully brought to be. It is a city that still awaits us in the future. It is a city in Revelation 21.4 in which God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more. It is a city in which there shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because all of those things will have passed away. It is a city not built with ordinary walls. It's a city in Revelation 21, 14, whose uh, foundations, has 12 foundations, and on those 12 foundations are the names of the apostles and the Lamb. In other words, it's a city built on the work of Jesus Christ and the testimony to that work. The Lamb who was crucified and risen and now reigns as King over all. And the apostles who bore witness to Him and inscripturated testimony to His work continues to bear witness. This is the foundation of the city to come, the gospel of Jesus in its fullness. This is a city that awaits us, and it is a place of rest. See, God wiping tears away. And not only that, it is a place of worship. The Apostle John says in this revelation, in verse 22 of chapter 21, he says, I saw no temple in the city. This temple that Nehemiah and Ezra were laboring to preserve, 
This temple is pointing toward a greater reality, Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 21 says, The Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The union that we have in Jesus now, it will be taken to an entire another level. And it won't be some cloud in the sky that we're occupying. It'll be real, solid, and firm, physical reality of God dwelling face to face with us. And not only that, we'll be dwelling in harmony with one another in that day. There'll be perfect rest, not just with God, not just with people of one ethnicity either, but it'll be multiple ethnicities, Asian, black, white, Latino, Arab, Pacific Islander, wherever you've come from. If you're in Jesus Christ, there'll come a day when together we walk face to face with God and one another. And we bring, as the scripture says in Revelation 21, 24 to 26, we bring our individual little baskets of glory. Those contributions of our culture and who we are, we bring them all together in that great heavenly city as one harmonious people. No one erased, no one leading with sin, no one leading with deprivation, no one cowering in the corner, no one defined by their hurts or their wounds or their oppressions, but all free in Christ, bringing the best of their culture to bear in a new heaven, in a new earth. This is the city that awaits us. You know, in Jesus, though we are a weak people, we too can become relentless. Not because of ourselves, right? But because of our confidence in Him. Nehemiah had confidence in the covenant promises of God. Those promises have been proven to us through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And we trust in Him. And because of Him, we have joy today, even mixed with tears. We have hope today, even mixed with struggle. And we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in so doing, we don't lose our character. We don't trade Christ's likeness for hatred or revenge. We don't cower away, but we speak the truth and we speak it in love. We show mercy and yet at the same time, we call for justice. We extend grace even as we do both. We lobby for change Monday through Saturday, but on Sunday we set our hope on Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in Him, we will find a future glory that far outlasts anything we could ever imagine. A city whose architect and builder is God and whose foundations were designed by Him. God bless you as you hope in Jesus. Let's all lean in together in the days to come, focused on Him for our worship and laboring together for the rest of ourselves and everyone in our city. In His name we ask this. Amen.